friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 14. Um, You'll remember last week that John was talking about why we do the Apostles' Creed every single week, and we begin to hear this thing again and again and again. And for better or for worse, John likened saying the Apostles' Creed every week to having a favorite blankie. Now, I don't think that analogy has ever been used in the history of the church. I don't think the apostles would have described it quite in that way. But it makes sense. What he's trying to say is we we grow in familiarity with this thing. The more we say the Apostles' Creed, the more we understand it, the more we memorize it, the more we're likely to use it during our week to remember the, the theology of the Apostles' Creed. Well, today I'm going to read the exact same portion of Scripture that we preached on last week but we're going to see something totally different, and I'm going to claim the blanky analogy. I want 1 Samuel 14 to sink into our hearts and minds and imagination, and I want it to change us. And so I'm going to read this same passage from 1 Samuel chapter 14. Hear now God's word. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a great panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Let's pray together. Father, we want to ask you to do the very thing that you promise you are going to do. We want to ask you that your word would go out from you and it wouldn't return void. That it would lodge itself in our hearts and our minds like seed on good soil. And that it would grow up in us and bear fruit 60 and 90 and 100 fold. Would you do that today in our midst? Would you use your word to change us? We ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, last week, if you were with us, we read this section and a little bit further, and we just made one interpretive point. All we wanted to say from this passage was one point of interpretation, and that is this. Jesus wins the world that Jonathan lives in. Jesus wins the world that Jonathan lives in. As we read this story, we realize that it is dripping with gospel imagery. Now, all of this is happening around 1050 BC, a thousand years before Jesus will come. But let me describe this story to you. The king's son, Jonathan, he descends into the valley of the shadow of death, a tomb-like place, only to resurrect up the north-facing side and strike a fatal blow to those who have come to steal and kill and destroy. Friends, that's the gospel. As we see this play out, we see the gospel. The violence of 1 Samuel 14 prefigures the violence that Jesus and his cross will wage against principalities and powers. This, This picture is right here for us. And so, according to passages like Colossians 2 and 1 Corinthians 15, because Jesus in his death and resurrection, because he has conquered sin and death and the devil, the world is a completely different place. We live in the fruit of that world. Now, Jonathan, he doesn't know this story. Jesus is not going to come for another thousand years. But Jonathan lives in this world intuitively. He understands that this is a world where God loves his people, where God intervenes with his people, and he uses his people to save. And we know from standing on this side of the cross, that is precisely the world that Jesus has won in the cross. Jonathan is living in the world by faith that Jesus has won. We said that last week. That was our point of interpretation. If we made one point last week, we're just going to make one point that this week. And this is our point of application. And that is, if Jonathan lives in the world that Jesus has won, as friends, we aid each other in this world. That's the one point we're going to wrestle with. As friends, we aid each other in this world. I want us to go back and look at this scene again. It's a powerful scene, and I want it to lodge in our minds. Jonathan, you'll remember, he's with his dad and 600 men and the priest. They're two miles south of where the Philistines are camped to the north. And the Philistines, they have this strong fortress, this garrison. They're sending out raiders. And Jonathan is incensed by all this. He's restless, and he grabs his armor bearer, and he says, let's go off to enemy lines. Let's face the enemy. When we read a passage like this, it's important for us to say, wait a minute, what is an armor bearer? Well, who is this unnamed person that Jonathan is taking with him to go? That's an important question. Well, an armor bearer was kind of like a knight's squire. He was a person who, of course, carried the armor for a warrior. He was also a person who could carry the shield and additional weapons. But this guy was not an errand boy. He's not like a golf caddy. This person is a warrior in his own right, and you choose him wisely because he is going to be at your right hand in battle, and you want someone who is skillful and courageous to be your armor bearer because he will fight with you. He will be the man fighting closest to you. So in a couple of chapters, we're going to read about the meeting between Saul and David. And when King Saul meets the future King David, and he sees that this man loves God, that this man is skilled, and that he fears God, he says, I want this man to be my armor bearer. And Saul chooses David for that position of honor to fight next to him in battle. 
Twice in scripture, we have a scene in which the warrior asks his armor bearer to be the one to kill him so that the enemy won't overtake him. In other words, I would rather die at your hand than to have the enemy capture me and do what they will to me. And I don't have any experience in this, but that is a deeply personal relationship to have with another person, to look someone in the eyes and say, I want you to be the one to kill me. Is that not? I say all this because I don't want us to think about these men as co-workers. The, the modern-day analogy of Jonathan and his armor-bearer is not me and the guy in the cubicle next to me. This is a relationship of deep trust, of deep courage, of deep skill, in which a bond is formed between these two men that could only be described as an incredibly unique friendship that they carry together. So Jonathan puts intimate trust in his armor-bearer. He tells something to his armor bearer that he hasn't told anybody. Jonathan, he doesn't tell this to his dad. He doesn't tell this to the priest. He doesn't tell this to the prophet Samuel. Only to his armor bearer does Jonathan make known the plan of what he wants to do. He grabs him and he says, let's go to the enemy lines. Well, he gets to this garrison, and we said that this is a steep cliff down one side, the south side, and a steep cliff up the other side. You can look this up online and see pictures of this thing. It's a very vivid, steep, rocky terrain. And on the other side is this well-fortified Philistine garrison. They've got a a fortress there. They're well-armed, and they're entrenched there. And all they would have to do if you were advancing on this garrison, if you started to come down this south side, they could hit you across that divide with a spear and kill you. And if you made it all the way to the bottom and you could start climbing up the other side to where they were, they could just kind of look over the edge of their garrison and drop a rock on you and kill you. It would be a very easy thing, which is why this was such a significant garrison for them to have. Knowing that makes what Jonathan says to his armor bearer utterly ridiculous. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they get up to the edge of this cliff. They're looking across this great divide. It's not even clear if you can climb down this thing and up the other side, much less face the men who are on the other side. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, verse six, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Essentially, he's saying, let's give this thing a whirl. Let's climb down. Let's get up the other side. And it might be that the Lord's going to do something. You know, it might be that he doesn't do anything and we just die, but it might be that he's actually going to do something and we'll live, we'll conquer these people. And when you hear Jonathan speak, you realize that there is a very thin line in the world between bold faith and the power of God to work and do anything and just plain brash stupidity. I mean, that line between faith and foolishness, you've experienced that before. What is trusting God intimately with my life? And what's just plain stupidity? And our text reminds us that it's often a Christian friend that can help us discern the difference. Because when Jonathan says this to the armor bearer, I don't know if God moves in the heart of the armor bearer. I don't know if he has a spiritual sense of things. I don't know if he has been with Jonathan so long that he trusts the faith that he hears in Jonathan's voice. But whatever the reason, the armor bearer turns to Jonathan and delivers what I think is one of the most beautiful lines of Christian friendship in all the Bible or all literature combined. Verse seven, he says to him, do all that is in your heart, Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Wherever you're going, 
whatever you're going to do, however we're going to get there, whatever the Lord's going to do through this, I'm all in. I am with you heart and soul. I put my life on the line for what God is leading you to do. That is a powerful image of Christian friendship before us. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to back that up with action. And the moment these words leave the armor bearer's mouth, if he hadn't said this, we might not even have this story before us. But the moment he encourages Jonathan and says this to him, Jonathan's off and running. He's going down the south side and the armor bearer is scrambling after him. He goes up the north side and the armor bearer, hand over foot, is climbing this wall behind him. And when they get up to this Philistine garrison, they're outnumbered 20 to 2 and there's only one weapon between them. And Jonathan has it and the armor bearer follows him. They get up the north side of this crag and they face this garrison and Jonathan just goes Mel Gibson on these Philistines. He's either got a curved sword or a short broadsword and he is laying these Philistines out two by two and Philistines, they're knocking over mugs of beer and pinochle cards. They're trying to get out of the garrison and get their sword strapped on before Jonathan hits them and drops them, but he doesn't kill them. He wounds them. And these Philistines could get up as Jonathan goes on to the next guy and hit him from behind. But the armor bearer is following him step by step. And the man does not have a weapon. He's got a club or a hammer or a pruning hook. And he follows Jonathan step by step. And the second a wounded Philistine rises up, he puts him down and puts him down and puts him down. And then the distance between me and that wall back there, half a furrow's length of an acre of land, they drop 20 Philistine bodies. Now that is a very apt description to say that this was like what an ox could plow in a half a day. Because if you would have had a bird's eye view of Michmash, you would have seen a clear path for Jonathan and his armor bearer, and you would have seen casualties of the Philistines piled on either side like a furrowed land that is ready to be planted of the garden of God's kingdom. When this happens, when the armor bearer follows Jonathan into action, we get but a glimpse of the beauty of Christian friendship. This is it before us visually for all of us to experience. Now I realize the interpretation for last week was theologically dense. I mean, to get a hold of the fact that that Jonathan's victory over the Philistines is a prefigurement of Jesus's victory over principalities and powers, that takes a lot of time in the New Testament to unpack. That's a very dense interpretive statement. And I realized that that this week, by contrast, the, the application this week could seem a little bit brittle. I mean, so the application is we should be a good friend like Jonathan's armor bearer was a good friend. That starts to sound a little bit like a Max Lucado birthday card, you know, or Valentine's, would you be my armor bearer? (laughs) But that just exposes more of our estimation of the role of a Christian friendship when really in all of scripture and in the New Testament descriptions of the church, Christian friendship is a building block of the kingdom of God. Jonathan shows that he lives in the world that Jesus won by his radical faith. He does something in radical faith. The armor bearer shows that he lives in the world that Jesus has won by his radical friendship and following this brother. Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, he looks at 11 men sitting around a dinner table and he gives these men a theology of friendship in John 15. 
Remember these words? He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Jesus, in John 15, gives us these three descriptions of what a Christian friend really is. The love that I, Jesus, have given you, you give that love to another person. The sacrifice that I have made for you, I've laid down my life for you. You, in turn, as a Christian friend, you lay down your life for another person. The, the knowledge that I give you of my Father's will, you as a Christian friend, in turn, take that knowledge and you share it with another person. That, according to John 15, is what it means to be a friend of another person. Jonathan's armor bearer, he doesn't know the story of Jesus. That doesn't come for another thousand years. But he now intuitively lives within this world that Jesus has won by being a friend who aids Jonathan in this world. He does this. Now, while he's doing this and while we see this, we realize that that our American culture is moving in a very different direction than the friendship that is described between these two men and other friendships that are going to be described. I'm always amazed we, we have two new additions to our family, two boys, Gabriel and Noah, they're ages four and two. It's, it's been fascinating to see the world through their eyes. And it's also been funny to, to realize the kind of commands and rules I have to give them that I never, ever, ever thought I would have to say to another person. Like boys, when we go to the food court at the mall, you cannot help yourself to other people's plates. We just, we don't do that. That's really awkward for me to explain afterwards. When we get to the park and there's a dad and his daughter on the rocking horse, you can't jump on behind them because three's a crowd and nobody wants that. So don't do that. Two weeks ago, we went to the Isle of Palms to the beach and this is one of their first times on the beach. And when we get there, we see chairs and umbrellas and uh, a big pile of brand new toys and no one's there. The family's off. You know, this is like the bear family. They're off doing whatever. And our two boys, I mean, they think this is part and parcel of the beach. They just run for these toys and grab them and start playing. And I need to like shoo them away and explain to them, we don't touch unused toys. I don't care if these toys sit here all day and no one ever uses them. Our family is not going to touch them. If push comes to shove, we can go to the store, we can get our own bag of toys, and we can leave those sit untouched all day. But let it never be said that a Gentino played with an untouched toy on the beach. (laughs) Why am I describing this world? Because we are Americans. We are individuals. We are self-made men and women. It's kind of frowned upon to ask for help. It's even awkward to ask to borrow something once in a while. We don't do things like this, and our boys need to understand that this is the world that we live in in American culture. But it's not just property that we have this kind of weird relationship with each other. I think we've utterly lost our imagination in our American culture to describe a deep abiding friendship with another person that's not sexual. Think about this. Can you name a movie in the last 10 years, it's not a war movie, it's not a sports movie, that depicts a friendship between two people that you would want to emulate? You probably can't readily think of that because we don't tell those stories, because we don't experience those stories, because we don't know those stories. Our culture is moving in a very different direction. And it surprises us, but it shouldn't, that we take all of those things that have already shaped us as Americans and we bring those right into the church. 
And so we get the language that we use with each other. We understand theologically that we're a family. You're my brother and sister in Christ. We're one body and Christ is the head. And we mean that in as much as you're not going to get too personal on me. You don't share too much with me. I'm not going to share too much with you. We're a family, but I don't want you to infringe on my rights and my freedoms. We're a family, but I don't want you to get too needy because that gets awkward for me. Our friendship muscles in the church have atrophied. We don't use them and we don't apply them. And so this is awkward for us to hear these things. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Who do you have in your life right now who would say to you, as a Christian, I am standing shoulder to shoulder with you. Do all that is in your heart. I am with you heart and soul. Can you name one, two, three people in your life right now, specifically people in this church, who would say that to you? Now, it's a little difficult for us to control what another person would say to us, so maybe the better question is for us to ask, to whom would I say that in my life or in this church? Who is a Christian that I would say to, do as you wish, do all that is in your heart, I am with you, heart and soul. I'm with you. Wherever you're going, I'm here to walk with you in Christ. Can you think of those people that you would apply those words to? Can you think of those friendships that you've built yet? Or is that a place that we're lacking in our lives? You know, recently we heard about the scandal of the Ashley Madison website. Ashley Madison is a website where married people can go to find an adulterous relationship. You can go, put in your information, Put in your credit card and you can get linked to other married people in your community who are also looking to have an affair. That's just outrageous. But um, a hacker came and exposed the entire website. They took all the names that were posted on that website and they made them public for everybody to see. And in doing so, there was obviously a ton of fallout. Whoever, the millions of people who had put their names on this website, that's now everybody can see that. And of one of the sad stories that came out of that was of a pastor in New Orleans. He pastored a church. He was a husband and a father of two kids. He taught part-time at a seminary. He was so humiliated to find his name exposed for all the world to see that he actually took his own life. He would rather die than face that humiliation. Friends, that's utterly sobering to us. I promise you there are people in this room right now who would rather die than be exposed as a sinner. All of us, every single person in this room can relate to thinking of a million fates we'd want more than for another person to know exactly all that we think or we do or we say. We understand that shame very deeply and we would rather the isolation of our shame than to be exposed before another person. The other sobering reality for us to remember is that some of us still think that Christianity is, is a personal sport that we play. That we think the most exciting and intimate things that happen in our relationship with God are in our personal pray, prayer closet by ourselves. That we think that we could describe our Christian life, contrary to what 1 John says, as just a relationship between me and my love for God and not in terms of my love for other people. 
We want Christ the head, but we don't want Christ the body. We want God, but we don't want the image bearers of God. He's knit us together in a church, but we often trick ourselves to say, you know what, what I would prefer is for this to be a personal, private thing between me and the Lord, and that's not described in Scripture. This is something that we're knit together in a body. 1 Samuel 14 reminds us, and passages like us, that we are being knit together as a community to do this. The armor bearer, he's going to show Jonathan what friendship looks like, and Jonathan is going to show King David what friendship looks like, and King David is going to be a man who surrounds himself by friends, and in doing so, he's going to live a life that starkly contrasts another man who is almost his contemporary, a man named Samson. Now, Samson dies at about the time that David is born, but there's a lot of similarities between these two men. Both of these men were leaders in Israel. Both of them had the Spirit of God on them. Both of them did incredible feats of valor to save God's people. Samson and David were very similar. Both of them committed adultery. Now, David had been confronted many times in his life, and he's confronted at this point, and he repents of his sin, and he's knit back together with his community, and he lives a life of faith with the people of God. Samson is a very different story. After years of adultery, the man Samson never had anybody close to him. The closest people to Samson were his parents and his pagan girlfriend, Delilah. And when Samson is undone by his adultery, ultimately he dies a very shameful, lonely, and isolated life. This idea of Christian friendship, it's a building block of the kingdom, and it has radical implications for our Christian life. This is not the icing on the cake of Christianity. This is in part and parcel of the cake that we imbibe as the group of God's people. You can't program stuff like this. You can't kind of make this happen in church. We're two years old and we want to kind of see this work together. And so if you come to us and you say, hey, how do I get involved? What do I do? What should I plug into? How do I participate? Where's the front door? And we say to you, go make a friend. If you've come from a church that has maybe been more programmed, where there are slots for you to fill, where there is a Sunday school class for you to teach, that can sound like a really wishy-washy answer, right? It's almost like I'm saying, gee, I don't know, get to know some people and we'll contact you if we can think of anything. That's not what we're saying. When we say to each other, make a friend in this church, what we mean is put on the full armor of Christ and grab a pitchfork and follow another believer into the fray. Join them shoulder to shoulder. If that believer is drowning in addiction, that's your program. If that Christian friend, they want to start a ministry among business people in the city, that's your program. If that Christian friend, they're just learning the language of grace and how they speak about the world as God's gift to them and show a life of gratitude, that is our program because this is the world that Jesus has won. It's a world where we aid each other in glorifying God together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in many ways, we have to relearn what it looks like to be a friend to each other. And I know that even now, Satan is telling us this is silly, this is stupid, it doesn't matter if we have friendships within the church, but he's a liar and he seeks to isolate and shame and destroy. May that never be. Give us, by the power of your spirit, the humility to reach out to one another, to befriend each other, and to live as the community of God's people. 
Would you do that in our midst? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.